Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. At Kroger, we believe it takes the right team to bring you the freshest produce. That's why we partner with farmers who grow only the best. And that level of teamwork means better, fresher options time and time again. Working with farmers is what it takes to be fresh for everyone. Kroger, fresh for everyone. It's the big $10 sale. So mix and match and get two, three, four, five, or even 10 for $10 with your card. So many great deals. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. All Hit Radio. To the X Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Welcome back to the Exxon, everyone. I am Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada, on the Talkstar Radio Network. We're also talking to you around the world on the Exxon Broadcast Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, and other audio and video platforms around the world. If you would like to uh, send me an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com on all social media sites, Exxon Radio TV. And to find out about the programming we have available for you 24-7, 365 on the Exxon Broadcast Network, visit www.xzbn.net. And for the Exxon TV channel on Simul TV, visit the Simul TV website at simultv.com. Now, before I bring on my first guest tonight, a good friend of ours, John Kachuba, I have been receiving a lot of flack for my stand on the pride flag. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It is not a legitimate flag. It should not be flown at state buildings, 
federal buildings, provincial buildings, any governmental building. But yet, I'm being called a racist. I don't know why. I am proudly Canadian. I believe in the Canadian flag. I, I don't know how many thousands of people have lost their lives under the Canadian flag, whether it's the present Canadian flag or the Canadian ensign or the Union Jack going past in time. Somebody wrote me something and sent it to me today, and they asked me if I'd be kind enough to read it to you, the members of the Exo Nation, and I, after reading it, I said I can't do anything else but read it. And here it goes. I have often wondered about why whites are racist, and no other race is. Sometime, and someone finally said it. How many are actually going to pay attention to this, Rob? There are African Americans, Mexican Americans, Asian Americans, Arab Americans, etc. And and these and then there are just Americans. You pass me on the street and sneer in my direction. You call me white boy, cracker, honky, whitey, caveman, and that's okay. You say that whites commit a lot of violent crimes against you. So why are the ghettos the most dangerous places to live? You have the United Negro College Fund. You have the Martin Luther King Day. You have Black History Month. You have Cesar Chavez Day. You have Yom Hoshana. You have Maloud al-Nabi. You have the NAACP. You have BET. And if we had wet white entertainment television, we'd be racist. If we had White Pride Day, we'd be racist. If we had White History Month, we'd be racist. If we had any organization for only whites to advance our lives, we'd be racist. We have a Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, a Black Chamber of Commerce, and then we just have the Plain Chamber of Commerce. I wonder who pays for that. A white woman could uh, not be in the Miss Black American pageant, but any color can be in the Miss America pageant. If we had a college fund that only gave white students scholarships, you know we'd be racist. There are over 60 openly proclaimed black colleges in the United States. Yet, if there were white colleges, that would be a racist college. In the Million, in the million Man March, you believe that you are marching for your race and rights. If we marched for our race and rights, you'd call us racist. You are proud to be black, brown, yellow, and orange, and you're not afraid to announce it. But when we announce our white pride, you call us racist. You rob us, carjack us, and shoot at us. But when a white police officer shoots a black gang member or beats up a black drug dealer running from the law, posing a threat to society, you call him a racist. I am proud, but you call me a racist. Why is it that only whites can be racist? There's nothing improper about this message I've sent to you, Rob. Let's see how many of your listeners are proud enough to listen to it. I sadly don't think many will. That's why we lost most of our rights in this country. We won't stand, we won't stand up for ourselves? Be proud to be white? It's not a crime yet. A faithful listener. There you go. Send me your comments. Exxon at exxonradiotv.com. 
Exxon Nation, my guest this hour is John Kachuba. John is an award-winning author of 12 books and numerous articles, short stories and poems. Shapeshifters, a history was published in June 2019. And Dark Entry is his most recent novel. John teaches creative writing at Ohio University and the Grantham Writers Workshop. Gotham Writers Workshop, I'm sorry, John. He is a member of the Historical Novel Society, the Horror Writers Association, and the American Library Association's Authors for Libraries. He is a frequent speaker at conferences, universities, and libraries, and on podcasts, radio, and TV shows. His website is www.johnkachuba.com, and that's J-O-H-N-K-A-C-H-U-B-A.com. And John, welcome back to the X-Zone. Thank you, Rob. It's always a pleasure to be here. Uh, tell us about your latest book, my friend. Well, the latest one is what you mentioned, Shapeshifters. Mm -hmm. And I'm proud to say that this year it was named as a finalist in the Horror Writer Association's Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in Nonfiction. That is fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, it's quite an honor. It's sort of equivalent to the Academy Awards for right. Horror Writers. So I was, I was very um, humbled and, and pleased to have uh, won that, or well, been awarded that uh, title anyway. Well, from everyone so, here at the Exxon to you, congratulations. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. So it's a new book for me. Uh, you know, I've been on your show, as you know, many times yeah. in the past. And uh, if your audience has heard me on the air, they've heard me talk primarily about the paranormal, about mm -hmm. ghosts and ghost hunting, yeah. which has been the subject of most of my books. But as I give a lot of my talks at libraries and universities, invariably, people would ask me questions afterwards and they would always mention shapeshifters. And I was always, I was amazed by that because I was talking about ghosts and not shapeshifters, but that always came up as a subject of interest to them. So I started doing some research on that to find out why there was such an interest. And what I discovered was that from cultures all around the world, from ancient times, I mean, like Neolithic times, mm -hmm. right up to today, there's been um, a belief in shapeshifters but they've also appeared in mythology, theology, uh, you know, popular culture, literature, the arts, uh, everywhere. It, so it's, it became quite a broad subject for me, and I was excited to delve into that. So Shapeshifters of History is that it's nonfiction, and it takes a look at, you know, it's a broad view, obviously, of all these ty different types of shapeshifters from cultures all around the world. So what What is a shapeshifter, John? Like <laughs> John, what is a shapeshifter? So a shapeshifter, the simple definition of that is a human being who is able to transform himself into something else, generally an animal, mm -hmm. but it could be another human. It could even be an inanimate object. Well, could we say so at this a, point that when vampire, uh, when, when Dracula changed into a bat, he was a shapeshifter? Right, exactly, exactly. And vampires and werewolves mm -hmm. especially are probably your quintessential... Uh, uh, shapeshifter types. Everybody sort of knows those. Um, and uh, but what I, that's a very simple definition. I looked at some other broad categories. So when you read my book, you'll see that not only do I talk about werewolves and vampires, but there's, there's fairies, there's um, all kinds of different sort of marine creatures that shift. There's Native American shifters. Mm. There's shifters back in ancient Greece and Rome and Egypt. Um, there's modern reptilian alien shapeshifters. So it's a, it's a wide range of, of uh, subjects. 
Sounds like it. John, stand by. You and I have to take our first commercial break for this this episode here. Exonation, we're talking to John Kachuba. Once again, if you'd like to find out more about John, his website is www.johnkachuba.com, and that is www.johnkachuba, John Kachuba. Shapeshifting is the topic of the hour here in the X-Zone as we continue our investigation into the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology, bringing you, the members of the X-Zone Nation all around the world, the experts in the know to help us get a better grip, a better understanding on one of the strangest parts of this reality called the paranormal. I'm Rob McConnell. This is the X-Zone, a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern right here on the Exxon Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, and on the X-Zone TV channel on Simul TV. John Kachuba and I return after this short break. Don't go away. Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. At Kroger, we believe it takes the right team to bring you the freshest produce. That's why we partner with farmers who grow only the best. And that level of teamwork means better, fresher options time and time again. Working with farmers is what it takes to be fresh for everyone. Kroger, fresh for everyone. It's the big $10 sale. So mix and match and get two, three, four, five, or even 10 for $10 with your card. So many great deals. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome back, one and all. This is the Exxon. Don't forget, starting next week, June the 29th, I'm sorry, that's in two weeks, June the 29th, from 7 a.m. until 9 a.m. You can join me, Rob McConnell, as I bring in the mornings here on the new channel that we have dedicated to the south coast of Canada. It's entitled CBRTV, and it'll be uh, focusing on this part of Canada, which is uh, the Lake Erie part, Niagara part, and we'll be able to talk to you about what's happening here in Ontario, New York, Ohio and Pennsylvania. That's Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. until 9 a.m. John Kachuba is my special guest. His website is www.johnkachuba.com. All right, John, let's get into the history of, of shapeshifters. When was the first historical mention that you have been able to find doing the extensive research that I know you do on all your books? 
when it comes yeah. to the shapeshifters. Yeah, the, sure. The earliest um, reference that I found was actually an illustration, and it's in the book. And what it is is a cave drawing from a, a, a cave in France, and it dates back to the Neolithic period. And what it shows is what looks like a deer, some kind of a an antlered animal, a deer, um, probably, mm -hmm. and it's standing on its hind legs. Right. But if you look at it very closely, um, and I, w I wish I had the picture, but if you look at it very closely, you'll notice that the eyes of the deer, for one thing, are not on the sides of its head like animals usually are, but they're bicameral. They're right in front, just as human eyes. And they're large. They seem to have pupils more like humans than a deer. But also, the really interesting thing is that instead of having um, hooves, if you look at it really closely, you'll notice that the front paws and the back paws of this animal have fingers, fingers oh, and really? toes. There, there's actual digits there. So what people think this was, was a representation of a shaman, a, you know, a prehistoric shaman going through some hunter ritual magic and depicting himself, transforming himself into a deer, which they would hunt. Wow. So... Yeah, so archaeologists and, and paleontologists and you know people like that believe that what was going on here was that this may have been, you know, the shaman probably got hunters together and they would go into some type of a trance state through chanting or singing or whatever, but also perhaps using some natural, uh, natural hallucinogenics from the environment, you know, perhaps mushrooms or whatever may have been available, but mm -hmm. something to put them in an altered state of consciousness. And then the shaman would be doing this thing with his paintings on the wall. And the hunters then would come to believe that they were transforming themselves into whatever prey it was they're going after. In this case, let's say it was a deer. So then the feeling was, if I'm a deer, it's very easy for me to get close to a deer <laughs> and take it and kill it because I could just blend in. Now, did these people really change into animals? No, probably not. Uh, but they were what I called internal shapeshifters, which is they would have an altered state of consciousness mm -hmm. that made them believe that they had actually changed into an animal. So that goes back. I mean, that's thousands and thousands of years ago, Neolithic era. Um, and that's the earliest that I found. I can't believe there's anything much earlier than that. Uh, but then you see it through all the ancient civilizations, like I mentioned earlier, Greece, Rome, Egypt. Um, you see in their mythology and in their depictions, like in uh, Egyptian pyramids and all, you will see forms that are half animal, half human, um, all depicting shape-shifting gods or goddesses throughout time. Well, so I, it's, I'm, it's, I'm sure that the you know one of the most prevalent shapeshifters, if we're using that example, that I can think of is Greek mythology. Yeah, exactly, and probably the prime uh, shapeshifter of all was you know Zeus, the the god of gods yeah. for the Greeks. Um, I have a lot of the Zeus stories in here, but I, I list maybe 12 different forms that he took in his career. Anything from an eagle to an ant to um, a shower of gold to, you know, actually even the form of another, another man. Right. And basically every time he did this, it was to seduce, another, uh, to seduce a woman. Um, and for the longest time, I couldn't figure out why that was. Like, why, why did he have to do that? He was a god. Then I realized, as I did a little more study in mythology, that if you saw Zeus in his true god form, godlike form, it would be too much. It would kill you. You wouldn't be able to stand the, the awesomeness of Zeus. 
So when he was changing, shape-shifting, he was doing that basically to, to link up with a particular woman he had in mind, but also, in a sense, to save her life, because otherwise she would not have been able to, uh, to survive actually being with him in his true form. You know, the, the natives of the Serengeti in Africa, as well as the Native Americans in the, and the Native Americans, would at times cover themselves with the, with the fur or the pelts of animals that they were hunting. Could this also lend to the stories about, and legends about shapeshifting? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, if you look at the ancient Scandinavians from around maybe the 12th century, 11th century, 12th century, there were warrior bands called berserkers, mm-hmm. um, from which we get our name berserk. Somebody goes crazy. And the reason for that is these warriors would take, just as you said, they would wear the pelts or the hides of either a wolf and they would be, there was a certain a Scandinavian name for those kinds of wolf warriors, or they would wear the pelt and the head and the hide, whatever claws of a bear. And there was a name for them too. And like those shamans that I mentioned earlier, before battle, the berserkers would work themselves up, definitely using hallucinogenic elements uh, from the environment, and would go into battle. They would be completely, you know, stoned, for lack sure. of a better word. But wearing the hides and pelts and heads of these animals, believing that they had transformed themselves into wolves or to bears. And they were unbelievable warriors. They were, it was said that even if you were an ally of those warriors in, in battle, you kept your distance because when they started swinging their axes and swords, whatever got in their way went down. It, you know, it didn't matter. They, they couldn't see. They'd be in a frenzy. They'd be berserk, as we say. Yeah. So there is something about the idea of the hide. Actually, when you look at some ancient werewolf stories, frequently the person that turns into a werewolf talks about being given some kind of, sometimes they'll call it a girdle or a belt made of a wolf hide, uh, and that some magical person came to them and gave them this belt to wear, which would then turn them into a wolf as they uh, as they wanted, whenever they wanted. And, uh, you know, I, I, that makes me wonder if drag queens are shapeshifters. They shapeshift from a male to a female. Yeah, you know, I talked a little bit in the book. I went into sort of popular culture. Yeah. And I talked about things like cosplay, where you have, um, you know, people that spend thousands of dollars on elaborate costumes yeah. to dress up as some superhero. Well, how about Comic-Con? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, and this is huge. It's yeah. a billion. It's billions yeah, it of is. dollars spent every year around the world on these things. And as you know, these these are not people that just simply wear a costume. That's right. I mean, they wear a costume, but they speak like the character. If the character only ate celery, they would only <laughs> eat celery. You know, they were fully in character. And so you ask yourself, you know, why? Why? What causes somebody to do that? Um, and to me, it's a form of shape shifting, just as even sort of um, some of the gender fluidity that we have today. Um, You know, that's, you wonder if somebody feels that they're not born into the right body or the right gender, uh, they will do what they can to, to change to the gender that they feel comfortable with, or it's a natural gender. And to me, that's, you know, I'm not trying to belittle it. I understand that. And I respect that. You know, we, we might even take it one step further and talk about some of the, uh, mental disorders like multiple personalities. Is this internal shape-shifting when a person believes that they're one person and then the next minute they're somebody else? 
Exactly. There's the psychology of shape shifting is is so fascinating. And you just mentioned some examples there. And you know, there's a case, there's a disease called lycanthropy, in which people felt that they were werewolves, that they right. had turned into werewolves. Now you would look at them and you would say, I'm looking at a normal human being, mm -hmm. except that they might be running around on all fours and growling at you and barking and trying to scratch you. I think but, I went out with her when I was a kid, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, right. But believing they were werewolves. And these people yeah. had to be institutionalized, you know. And there's cases in my book from medieval France and Germany around maybe the 15th and 16th century, mm -hmm. cases of people who believed that they had transformed into werewolves and then went out and acted like a werewolf and that they brutally murdered people, literally tearing them apart with their bare hands, sometimes eating them. I mean, horrendous stuff. Um, and when they were brought to justice in the Middle Ages, they were usually, you know, burned at the stake for what they called werewolfery. But um, yeah, definitely, definitely psychological diseases, mental disease. Fascinating topic with a fascinating guest. John, you and I have to take our news break at the bottom of the hour. Please stand by. Exonation, John Kachuba is my special guest. We're talking to John about shapeshifters this hour. He has a new book that's entitled Shapeshifters, A History. And it was published in June of last year. And we're also going to be talking to John about Dark Entry. All this and more as the Exxon continues with yours truly, Rob McConnell, from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. Now, if you'd like to find out more about our guest this hour, John Kachuba, visit his website at www.johnkachuba.com. That's www.johnkachuba.com. Com. My name is Rob McConnell. This is the Exxon, and we'll both be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. family style deal because i want a bite of your big mac and i need some of your quarter pounds i'll try your filet of fish there's a deal for every friend group at mcdonald's order any two classics for just six bucks price of participation may vary single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer the we're going family style deal because i want a bite of your big mac and i need some of your quarter pounds i'll try your filet of fish there's a deal for every friend group at mcdonald's order any two classics for just six bucks price of participation may vary single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer Welcome back, everyone. John Kachuba is my special guest this hour, johnkachuba.com. And for those of you who love listening to the Exxon Broadcast Network, or if you're joining us for the first time tonight and you'd like to listen to other great programs we have available for you, let me see tomorrow on the Exxon Broadcast Network. We have Too Good to Be True with Justina and Peter Marsh, Connecting with Coincidence with Dr. Bernie Beitman, M.D., 
Search Seeking Reality with Herberta Grimes, Divin uh, Dialogue with Divinity with Joanna Carroll. Uh, let me see here. Uh, Cooch Daniels is going to be on tomorrow. Mission Evolution with Gwilda Wiecka. A Different Perspective with uh, Dr. Kevin Randall. And, of course, the Exxon Radio Show with yours truly, Rob McConnells. And some other great radio shows and old-time sci-fi shows. And you know what? It's all with our compliments and the compliments of our advertisers. So no matter where you are around the world, just go to www.xzbn.net. And all the information on our programming is there. Uh, first of all, John, I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's always a great pleasure talking to you. And again, congratulations on uh, all the great work you're doing. Thank you, Rob. When we, when we talk about shape-shifting, could we look at... Uh, biblical interpretation of shape-shifting when we talk about the transfiguration? Yeah, you know, I, um, yes, the short answer is yes. Uh, I wrote about that, and I I got some uh, some criticism from it uh, in a Catholic uh, magazine, as you can probably imagine. But what I was trying to point out here was that there is there are references in the New Testament that seem like shape-shifting episodes. And the transfiguration, you know, for those of the audience who may not know it, is in the New Testament, Jesus goes out with a couple of his disciples, and they go to a mountain, and he basically says to them, you stay here at the bottom of the mountain, I'm going to go up top, and, you know, just just wait for me. Yeah. So he goes up to the top of the mountain, and as they're down there, they see him up there, and suddenly he changes. Instead of just being this human being that they knew, he becomes sort of what lack of a better word, a radiant light being. I mean, the Bible says that, you know, he glows, he was yeah. radiant. It was so, they hide their eyes, they can't see, you know, it's so overwhelming. And apparently, um, they said two prophets appear, Elijah and Moses, who have been dead for centuries, and they see those two with him. And then after he comes, after that, it, light goes out and he comes down, and that was about it. And he, you know, he kind of says, How do you, how'd you like the show, you know? Um, so, my question always is, what was that about? What was the nature of that? Um, there was certainly some type of a transformation, mm -hmm. uh, according to the Bible. And interestingly enough, uh, the Buddha, too, had in his lifetime, he had two similar transformations um, that his disciples witnessed. And there was also a Hindu Swami, I think back in like the 19th century, pretty new, whose disciples also said, he had this kind of a radiant transformation. So what is that? To me, that seems like that's a bit of shape-shifting. Um, and there's other examples in the New Testament as well. There's a theologian from Amsterdam who I uh, sort of quote in the book here, and he had interpreted a Coptic text, an ancient Coptic text from the Morgan Library. And in his interpretation of this text, he, it talks about Jesus, and he says, I'm gonna paraphrase it because I don't have the words exactly in front of me, but that Jesus appeared, um, they say, ruddy, uh, white, as an old man, as a young man, mm -hmm. uh, different red. The whole idea was that, according to this translation, Jesus appeared to people in different forms. They saw him differently. Now, that could just be metaphorical in the sense that being a great teacher and able to reach people, that maybe he was able to reach different audiences in a way that they saw him as sort of one of them. Or it could mean what it says, literally, that he was capable of changing. 
and people got on me in the Catholic magazine about, you know, how could you say that about Jesus? And I said, well, if you believe that he's God, then he can do anything, right? Exactly. He can walk on water yeah. and change water to wine and raise the dead. Changing your shape into a light being should be small potatoes. Especially since changing into a light, uh, a light being, being coincides with what people believe happens at the time of death. You know, when you go towards the tunnel of light and they're met by light beings. You know, That's so right. this all justifies and, and quantifies what people have been saying for decades. Right. Yeah, and, and I was trying to be as respectful as possible in the book, but still saying that this might be an incident. You Certainly. Know, so, Where did you do most of your research, and how did you validate and vet the information that you have in your book? <laughs> well, I did a ton of reading. Uh, I, I was reading ancient, you know, ancient manuscripts and uh -huh. old books and court records and trial records and all kinds of things. But I also did a lot of um, on the ground legwork where I went to different countries. I went to eight different countries, wow. um, Western Europe and Eastern Europe. And I was in five different countries in Asia. So altogether, you know, 13 or 14 countries to do research and, and visit locations that e either were rumored to have some, you know, shape-shifting lore attached to them, either contemporary mm -hmm. or something way back. For instance, Romania. You know, I went to all the sites that are associated with Dracula, <laughs> the fictional Dracula, um, because, of course, he's one of the quintessential shapeshifters. Um, so I went to all the sites of Vlad the Impaler, mm -hmm. who was the actual prince, uh, 16th century prince, upon whom the novel Dracula is loosely based, you know. So I went to all those places. It was, it was great research, great fun. Was there any time during the research and during the footwork that you were doing for your book that something you discovered just blew you away? Huh. Well, I think there was something, I'm not sure if I'd say blew me away, but it was a very unusual story I'd never heard. Okay. Uh, I went to Belarus. Uh, nobody goes to Belarus. but I, Oh, you but, did? But You're somebody. Yeah, yeah. And I found that there was a prince from, uh, I guess, like the 12, like 12, 1100 or so, mm -hmm. named Veslev, Prince Veslev. And uh, he was this powerful medieval prince. And it was said that he would he'd go out on these raids to different neighboring countries and, you know, ransack and loot and bring things back. He built this cathedral in, in Belarus in a Syria, in a, um, I forgot the name of the town already, but the cathedral is St. Uh, Sophia, um, Holy Wisdom, and it's a beautiful church. But it was said that he did it as a vampire, uh, not a vampire, I'm sorry, as a werewolf. Hmm. How, how do you do that? And I looked up, there's an old Russian tale, and it talks about Veslev, that the reason why he was able to cover such large distances on his raids and return was because he did it as a werewolf, and so had incredible werewolf speed that allowed him to do this. Um, which I just found, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if it blew me away, but it was like, this was a very unusual tale that I had never heard it spoken of anywhere before. Uh, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, would shape-shifting also fall into the new goth 
community that uh, that has been that popped up around 10 12 years ago I don't know um, I I'm not really sure about that I know that there are communities today of vampires right uh, although they would call themselves sanguinarians um, there's a fairly large community in New Orleans there's actually one up in Buffalo New York not too far from you know where you and I are <laughs> Um, but you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure about the goths. I really yeah. don't know about that. But the uh, the sanguinarians are interesting because they don't go around biting people's necks. You know, they have willing partners who either uh, donate blood uh, or they sometimes get you know animal blood. But they do say that they need blood to survive. That this is something essential to their um, their well being. And the way it's done is just as if you're doing blood transfusions. It's done under sterile conditions, mm -hmm. under medical conditions, uh, with their partners uh, or their donors. It's, uh, it's very interesting. Geez, I like rare steaks. Uh, I wonder if that makes me a vampire. <laughs> it, it might. How about reptilian alien shapeshifters? Did you get into that? I did. I covered in the book. This is a theory from an Englishman named David Icke. Oh, yeah. Good old David. I say you may have had him on your show even. Many times. Yeah. He's, he's, yeah, he's pretty much out there. Um, so he has a theory that millions of years ago, there were aliens that came from some particular star cluster. I don't remember what the name of it was, but they came here. Mm -hmm. And they were, not only were they aliens, but they are reptilian aliens capable of shape-shifting. All right, what we're going to do is we're going to have a bit of a cliffhanger here because I don't want to interrupt <laughs> this story because the name David Icke, reptilians, shape-shifting, wow, I've got to hear this in its entirety, so please stand by. Exonation, our guest this hour is John Kachuba. We're talking to John this hour about shape-shifting. And if you'd like to find out more about our guest, visit his website at www.johnkachuba.com. That's www.johnkachuba.com. And this is the Exxon, a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. We're here Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern. And on the weekend, we have the best of the week's shows. Find out when you can listen to us. Well, all you need to do is go to www.xzbn.net. Just like the many other great shows we have there, just check our broadcast schedule and, you know, just listen online. We'll be back on the other side of this break as we wrap up this hour. Don't go away. Exonation, uh, the Exxon Broadcast Network is always growing, and we're always looking for new show ideas and new 
show hosts. So if you have an idea or if you'd like to host a show here on the Exxon Broadcast Network, send me an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com. That's exxon at exxonradiotv.com. And I will make sure that the people who do the programming get your email, and we look forward to having you as part of the network. John Kachuba is our guest, www.johnkachuba.com. Dot com is his website. And uh, John, as I said to you during the last break, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Congratulations on all you do. Um, how many books have you written all told now? Um, Twelve. Wow. Any more in the works? Oh, yeah. There's always some in the works. I'm writing. I'm working on one now, and my agent is uh, busy trying to sell a couple of other ones, too. So hopefully Excellent. we'll get something out there again soon. All right, we were talking about David Icke, alien shapeshifters that are apparently reptiles that shapeshift into humans. So please continue this fascinating story. Right, right. So according to uh, David, these aliens came to Earth millions of years ago, mm -hmm. and they mated with whatever sort of proto-humans were running around on the planet at that point. But their, their um, progeny now carries that reptilian genetic material. So huh. David says that, you know, there are still people today who have this reptilian alien shape-shifting gene in them and that are capable of making that shift. Um, he's also said there's like communities, I don't want to misquote him exactly, but I thought communities underground where yeah. some of these folks live. But the interesting thing about this whole theory is that, according to David, they have um, been able to sort of ingratiate themselves or advance into positions of power and influence in politics, in art, sports, social culture, media, whatever. So as an example, Queen Elizabeth, according to David, is a reptilian alien shapeshifter. You um, know, but looking at David as as a fantasy writer or a theorist, I can see it, but he has never provided any proof whatsoever to substantiate or back up any of the claims he's ever made. So how do we take him serious? Right, right. I mean, that's that's always been a problem. He has millions of people, supposedly, that subscribe to his newsletter about reptilian alien shapeshifters and all, and I, I agree with you. I, I really can't take it seriously because there is no... Well, there's nothing to back it up. I'm going to I mean, I'm going to share with you a story. Uh, this is this is the truth that actually happened when I was doing the show at CKTB in St. Catharines. I announced the week before that David Ike was going to be a guest on our show. I received a call from the Niagara Regional Police asking if David Ike was going to be in studio or not, and I said no, he's going to be on the phone. And uh, they said, uh, I said, well, why? They said, well, we just want to know. Okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> I decided at that point to kind of bump David. Because, you know, you, yeah. when the Niagara Regional Police call you up and they ask you about a, a guest, there has to be a reason. And, and David was causing a little bit of, of a stir with his statements uh, when it came to the Queen and other political figures. Right. So I, right. I canceled the show with David. That night, well, that night yeah. when I went outside on my way into the studio, there was an unmarked police car 
in our parking lot with two detectives in it. <laughs> you know, so... Wow. I don't know. David never came to the studio, and that's the last time I had uh, David on the show. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's strange. I mean, no, he has a lot of other sort of, I'll just say, conspiracy theories about other things. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, the, the problem, I mean, I always this always seemed like a pretty far-fetched uh, story, but yet there are people that, that believe the shapeshifter story that, that he has. But I could never figure out what was the point of it. I mean... What were these shapeshifters supposed to do? They've been here for millions of years, according to this. To what point? To yeah. what purpose? You know. So. Anyway. You know, I, I know for a fact that there are those in the Bigfoot community that are convinced that Bigfoot is a shapeshifter. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not a, I'm not a cryptozoologist, but I do know something about Bigfoot. I, I don't, I don't think that's the case, in my, my opinion. Yeah. But, you know. It, it, it seems that shape-shifting gives the gives the the legend the ability to appear real because it cannot be disproved you know it's just like i believe that those who believe in the ufo conspiracy are the people who keep the ufo myth and legend alive because as long as there's a conspiracy in place where the government is allegedly um hiding facts or you know keeping the conspiracy going as long as nothing can be proved to to disprove what they're saying if that made any sense the -hmm. conspiracy lives on right and i think unfortunately even when it can be proven (laughs) what we're disproven there are still some people that go ahead and say well i don't believe i don't believe to disprove You know, I, I've been doing this show now for 30 years. We're in our 31st year. Still no proof of UFOs. Still no proof of ghosts. Still no proof of Bigfoot. And yet people are still clinging on to the every word of people like David Icke. And in the UFO community, Roswell is still alive and doing well. Now they're skin, uh, Skinwalker Ranch. All this... Right without any proof whatsoever. Right, right. Why do you think that is? I don't know. <laughs> I, I do think that sometimes we just want to believe in things bigger and, right. I don't want to say greater, but some mysterious, some other forces, powers outside of our own sort of abilities and sure. our own intellect. I don't know, I but sometimes, you know, I'll stick to believing in Santa Claus. He seems to be a safe bet. Yeah, see, there you go. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> um, we, we we're running out of time very quickly because time always goes by so fast when you're with us, John. Tell us a little bit about Dark Matters or your dark book. Uh, dark Entry? That's it. Novel? Thank you. Sure, yeah. Uh, dark Entry is a paranormal novel, but it's mm-hmm. based on a real location in Connecticut where I grew up uh, called Dudleytown. And uh, it's 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 a horror story. It's it's a you know I certainly jazzed up some of the true events of Dudley Town, but Dudley Town itself is a very mysterious place. And it's funny when the novel came out, uh, Dudley Town is private property. It's a it's a little mountain in mm-hmm. Connecticut, very wooded. And there was an 18th century village there that is abandoned, and there's nothing left but cellar holes now. But there are still like five or six or seven different homes up there 
and the people have kind of a private association. And uh, they keep people off that mountain because there are a lot of paranormal explorers that go up there doing all kinds of crazy things, but mm -hmm. um, basically annoying the people that live there. But they sent me a letter. Um, their association sent me a letter when I was writing Dark Entry when it first came out, a, a cease and desist letter. You're kidding. Um, no. They, they threatened me with all kinds of lawsuits and everything else if I published the book and, you know, in fact, not only that, even if I talked about Dark Entry, Dark Entry is what, that's the nickname for Dudley Town. People locally call it Dark Entry. So that's the name of the location. Um, so yeah, they even threatened me if I even so much as talk about it. So if anybody's listening from the Dark Entry Association right now, uh, <laughs> I'm in trouble. Don't blame um, David. I asked him. Send me an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com. But that sort of tells me something about the location. And, uh, you know, that to go to that degree, there was somebody else trying to make a movie about it, and they did the same thing. They threatened him with all kinds of lawsuits and everything, too. What are but, they hiding? So, well, that's what you want to know, right? I mean, why, why would they be going through this great, uh, you know, great extent of threat and intimidation? Mm -hmm. um, for what reason? And I'd been up there myself. I mean, I'd been there personally a long time ago and took pictures and everything else and actually went uh, and talked to the Warrens, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who uh, you know are both now deceased but are sort of America's godfather and godmother of ghost hunting mm. uh, because they had done a lot of work up there as well. Uh, so he compared some notes and everything, too. Maybe it's because they didn't want the negative press. They didn't want the hype. They didn't want the disturbance that many ghost investigators bring wherever they go and Maybe they're just fed up with the whole thing. Yeah, certainly. And that is certainly a part of it. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to have people traipsing through my yard all the time and all hours of the night or sure. whatever either. Um, so that's part of it. But, you know, some people think there might be more. I I don't know what more, but, you know, there are some people that have suspicions. John, we've come to that point where you and I must say so long for tonight. Quickly tell our listeners where they can get a copy of your book. Sure. Well, the easiest thing uh, is to go to my website that you've been talking about, johnkachuba.com. There is a book tab there, uh, and all my books are listed there, and they'll be linked to either Amazon or directly to the publisher or whatever. Um, if you can't get to my website, you can go to amazon.com. It's on there. Uh, almost any on online bookseller, Barnes & Noble online, Walmart online, almost any of them have my books too. So. And, of course, in bookstores. If they're open, go to a bookstore. There you go. Exonation. Nation, my guest this hour has been John Kachuba, www.johnkachuba.com. John, take care of yourself, and we look forward to the next time you join us back here in the Exxon. Thank you. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news at six and a half minutes past the top of the hour as the Exxon continues right here from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. Send me your emails, exxonradiotv.com, and check out the broadcast schedule at www.xzbn.net. I'm Rob McConnell. Don't go away.